Welcome to Nano Matters, the podcast that explores examples of nanotechnology. I'm Lisa Friedersdorf, Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office. Here with me today is Aaron Lavik, Professor of Chemical, Biochemical, and Environmental Engineering and Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So Aaron, can you talk a little bit about your research projects that you have going on right now? Absolutely. So probably the most exciting research project we have is we make nanoparticles to try to control bleeding. And this came out of work I did over 20 years ago, where we saw that we had less bleeding in the spinal cord and that led to better outcomes. But in that study, we were implanting something. It was a really neat work and it was we had really neat findings, but it's not something that's easily translatable. And so we wanted to be able to ask the question, if we can reduce bleeding, can we improve spinal cord outcomes in a way that would be more translatable? And my graduate student and I got together and we brainstormed and we came up with a technology that we thought would work. And we figured it would take about six months to design it. And we pursued that. And six years later, we had the first nanoparticle that could control bleeding. And that's really become the foundation for a whole area of research in our laboratory. So can you talk more about the nanoparticle itself and how it controls bleeding? Absolutely. So these nanoparticles are designed, they have a polyester core and they have polyethylene glycol around them, which creates a water-filled corona. And then at the ends of that, we have RGD. And RGD is a peptide sequence that's really ubiquitous in the body. You see it in all sorts of structural proteins. And essentially what these particles are designed to do is to interact with activated platelets. So when you have an injury, your platelets, which have a plate-like morphology, become activated and they go from plates to stars. And at the ends of those stars, there are a bunch of receptors that are designed to grab onto peptides. And not surprisingly, because it's ubiquitous, they tend to grab onto RGD. So we had designed these particles and what they do is they essentially act like bridges between these activated platelets and that causes the clot to form more quickly. And by doing this, we can reduce bleeding and ultimately improve outcomes. As one of my colleagues likes to say, everything reduces bleeding at some point, we'd like to actually improve survival too. Can you talk about some of the challenges you faced and how you overcame those challenges? We didn't start with a nanoparticle. We actually started with a molecular structure. It was a multi-armed PEG, so polyethylene glycol again. And what we found was that didn't actually bridge between activated platelets, so that first design was terrible. And then we started playing with different nanoparticles, and we found we actually had a lot of trouble initially. Um, We thought, how hard could this chemistry be? Um, Because so many people were making these kinds of nanoparticles. But what we often found was that we couldn't get much peptide on there or the peg wasn't very uniform, or the particles were lots of different sizes. And so we had to work through all of those different pieces. And I will say those particles are fantastic. If you're a rodent and you have a trauma, we can stop your bleeding and improve your survival. But when we went to translate it, it turned out they worked terribly. They actually exacerbated bleeding. So the, you know, the next 10 years of the lab really has been, how do we make a particle that doesn't cause off-target effects? Because that's the other piece of this, is these particles always bond with activated platelets and always form platelet plugs. 
But the first generation of these particles also triggered what we call vasodilation, and that's where the blood vessels open up. And you can imagine that makes it very difficult to stop the bleeding. So there have been lots and lots of challenges along the way. What does the future look like for your research So a big part of what we now do is we do a lot of screening in vitro, and we can do that with human blood. And that's really important because that's obviously our target audience. We want to help people. And so one of the biggest parts of our work is really saying, so how can we do as much as possible in vitro, in meaningful models, with human blood and tissues? And when we do enough screening, we finally take the successful particles and then we have to look at the trauma models. And unfortunately, those are still animal models, either rodent models or large animal models. And we do that in collaboration with teams of people who are experts so that we can reduce the numbers and do it as humanely as possible. So what other types of medical conditions are you targeting with these nanoparticles? We started by trying to target bleeding in the central nervous system, and that may sound weird, but that's our first love, is really trying to treat injuries to and diseases of the central nervous system. So after you have a brain injury or spinal cord injury, you start to have bleeding. And we want these particles to be able to manage that. But since these particles become entrapped at that point, we can actually load them with drugs, which can help to improve healing and improve outcomes. So that's one part of the work. The other parts that we're really interested in is thinking about other kinds of traumas and whether or not these particles can help participate in that. And that really comes down to what kinds of drugs are needed and what kinds of profiles. And can we then use these particles as a way to be a better carrier system in trauma. And that's that's a, a, an exciting area for us. Is there an opportunity to use these particles in concert or decorate the materials with your particles to have a more significant effect? Absolutely. So you can either use them in concert. You know, one of the nice things about most of the gauzes that are out there, and some of them are just remarkably beautifully engineered, and you know, these can be used in conjunction with those. When I first started making these particles, people said, oh, you know what we should do? We should take these gauzes and decorate them with your particles. And I totally get that. But honestly, that would make this gauzes way more expensive than they currently are. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the best use of them. We actually did, and it's the infamous N of 1 study. We had sort of, you know, an ability to test it. We've created a spray-on version of the particles to try to be able to spray onto a localized area. That was for gastrointestinal bleeding. And that, I think, is actually a neat application of it. But realistically, I think the idea of using these particles delivered intravenously in concert with gauze and other treatments makes an incredible amount of sense. So the whole goal is really to stabilize a patient. Can you share, first of all, a time when your research took a different direction based on maybe some unexpected findings, and then what you're looking toward in the future? Where do you think your research is headed? Certainly one of the biggest pivots for us, we didn't go into this to become nanoparticle people. I think we thought we would make nanoparticles to ask a basic research question. And I think partially because it was six years of working it out and it worked so well, we thought, well, we have to pursue this. And that really was a big pivot for us. And then the other one along the way was we didn't expect it to 
cause an exacerbation of bleeding when it did in some of the models. And it was a couple years where it was honestly pretty terrifying, where we thought we were never going to be able to figure out what was going on and certainly never come up with a solution to move forward. The number of times I've thought, well, we tried and I think we're done, has been greater than three at least. I think one of the biggest things for us has been to learn to say it's okay if it doesn't work. You know, we all know we fail and there's there's little failures and then there's those, hmm, we failed and do we know what happens next? And it's learning to say, yeah, we actually do and we will figure this out because we are a collaborative team that supports each other. That's what's kept us going. And I'm I'm kind of amazed that we have been able to keep going after all these years. My hope is even if we never create a treatment, I hope we do, that's our goal. But I hope even if we aren't successful, that we give a really clear roadmap to everyone else that started to join the field so that they will come up with something because we desperately need treatments for trauma. It's the biggest reason young people die and yet we have no good treatments to control internal bleeding except for surgery. And it takes a while to get to that. It's what we call definitive care, and people talk about the golden hour, but in a lot of parts of the U.S., it can be much longer than an hour before you get to a place that can really help treat you. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I guess the only closing thought I have at this point is that I am just grateful. We've been very lucky to be funded by wonderful agencies over the years, but this work happens because I've gotten to work with really brilliant people whose attitude is, Hmm, Sure, let's try it. And that, I think, is the fundamental thing that moves science forward, is a a willingness to try what, if you thought about it too long, probably would seem unlikely, if not impossible. So I am grateful that I get to work with people who are not scared of failure. (laughs) 